My name is Brett. I happen to be the overseer for what we do here in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's a pleasure being with you. We're glad to have all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Uh, really happy you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. And um, let me be the, the latest uh, to say happy Thanksgiving, uh, but also the first to say Merry Christmas. Uh, it's going to be a fabulous season. I believe the Holy Spirit is going to be glorified in this environment as well as in your homes. And we want to be a congregation that helps to stimulate whatever is supposed to be uh, the emphasis of the season. Jesus Christ being the God-man coming in flesh to be the benefit of redemption for all of us. And I hope that that is the, the atmosphere and, and practice as well as devotion that, that abides in your home. Um, we are excited about these next four weeks, and uh, we're going to start off today talking about the city welfare, and I'm going to contextualize it within the holiday season. If you'll turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 29, again the title of the message is city welfare, would you stand as we read the word of God, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. Lord, help us we study your word today. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. Three things in this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, seek the city, city's welfare. Two, supplicate to God on behalf of the city. And then, success is found in the well-being of the city. Jeremiah was a was an unfortunate prophet. Every prophet had to deliver the word of the Lord to somebody or some people. And that word was, was generally not very pleasant when they did. Too often the people were, or the person, was disobeying. And so God had to help them understand what the boundary lines were and how they had crossed them. And so the word of the Lord was not very favorable to the person who was listening because they needed to repent or judgment was coming to their life. But there were always periods of joy, uh, not always, routinely, periods of, of either respite where the people of God were doing pretty well and the prophet didn't have to bring some discouraging word, or prosperity. In David's day, Nathan had to say very few things that were negative. For the first 20 or 25 years of David's reign, like it was all great. But Jeremiah, the entire tenure of his ministry was sad. From the day he was... He was called by God. He made excuses that were somewhat valid. If you look in Jeremiah 1, the Lord called him. He said, I've called you from the womb. And he said, but Lord, I, I'm just a youth. I can't really speak. Like, I'm, I don't have any credibility. The people are going to listen to a kid. I'm in youth group. How are the gray hairs going to ever hear anything i got to say? God told him, don't. Say that you are youth, for where I will send you, you will go. You will uproot, you will tear down, you will build, and you will plant. From the time he was young, he was having to say things that were hard for people to hear. And his ministry lasted, we believe, about 50 or 60 years. Every time he spoke, it was about how the people hadn't obeyed and how they were going to be judged for it. And Israel knew that the promised land was theirs. That wasn't that, that was a given. 
And, and when I speak about Israel now, it's just Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken captive. I don't have time. But the southern kingdom was now the reigning populace for Jewish culture in all of what we know as the promised land. And these people had been disobeying for now a good period of time. And God was telling Jeremiah, this is the generation that ain't going to make it. King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon in the east, he's coming. He's going to destroy the city. He's going to burn it with fire. Going to be nothing left. And if you all want to survive, you better surrender. What kind of patriot says that? He had so much, so many accusations and so much derision speak, spoken about him, meaning Jeremiah, that nobody, nobody, even, nobody not only not wanted to listen to him, but everybody believed he was a, a Babylonian sympathizer, that this was a guy who was a traitor. He was actually a plant. He was probably, when Nebuchadnezzar came, and if the things that were, were going to happen, that he said were going to happen, were going to happen, he was going to get a, a place in the kingdom for, for Nebuchadnezzar, probably be in his cabinet someplace. That's Jeremiah. He's a spy. That's what they thought about him. Those were the words. They tried to shut him up regularly. They threw him into a cistern. Now, we don't know much about waterways because ours come through pipes but back then it was pretty natural you had a stream and and it, if it had underground waters that were close by you'd dig a well and that well would be filled with the streams of water that were underground a cistern was a little bit different a cistern had water that seeped in from the sides of the well it didn't have a stream it just kind of meandered down to the bottom well there's one particular cistern that was in jerusalem was so old and unusable that it was now a mud pile at the bottom, deep of mud. They said, Jeremiah, we think this should be a good home for you. And they threw him in and left him there to die. The book of Lamentations, that's Jeremiah. He wrote that. Saddest book in all the Bible. One beautiful verse we get out of it the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. It is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we highlight that verse so much because it's true, but it's spoken other places in the Bible. You can find something like it in the Psalms, but it's so highlighted there because it's the only verse of hope in the entire book. Everything else circumstantially is a wreck. That's why it's called lament, lamentations. It's Jeremiah's soul being poured out about he wishes what didn't happen. Why did this have to occur? My soul is broken for everything that has happened to my people. And I, I've had to be the one for the last 50 years to bring bad news every day of my life. He begged God from time to time, please don't let me talk anymore. Please don't let me talk anymore. He said, but every time I, I bottled it up, it was like, fire in my bones. I had to say it. This was Jeremiah. And people of God had disobeyed for too long, and now judgment was coming. Jeremiah 29, judgment had come. And there were a couple of deportations from Israel to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city. He hadn't taken everybody, but there were two or three deportations to Babylon. He only took people that he thought could benefit his society. 
And so he, he, he removed the most valuable and kept the least valuable in Jerusalem. The prophet Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel were contemporaries with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was older than both, but they were contemporaries. They worked together. So the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel need to be overlaid with the last part of the last 20 or so chapters of the book of, of Jeremiah to get a full picture. And Jeremiah is prophesying now to the people who have been taken captive in Babylon. Either it's the first or second deportation. And he's saying to them this, seek the city's welfare. They already thought that he had no credibility as a prophet because they confused him as being somebody who was a spy for Babylon. And now he's telling them to do exactly what they don't want to do. You want me to seek these people's welfare? These people who burned my city, killed my uncle, murdered my grandparents, treated all the women in Jerusalem horribly? You want me to seek their welfare? You got to be, you've gone too far. No, absolutely not. I hate these people. I want them dead. The only way I'm going to feel justified is if this city experiences judgment for what they did to us and we get to go back home. That was a common sentiment. And yet Jeremiah was saying, care for this city. God doesn't think like you. He doesn't reason like you. Your thoughts are not his. And you ought to say amen to that. Because I know you think you know best what needs to happen to people who don't like you. You've got it scripted. You know exactly what God needs to do to, to right the wrong, don't you? But remember, there's somebody who's saying that same thing to God about you. Aren't you glad God's not listening to them? God doesn't think like you think. And I've said this before, but it bears saying again. God likes people you don't. He cares about people you care not for. So much so that he says, if you find an enemy, be like me and love them. If somebody is really on your bad side, figure out how to, how to re realize how much I loved you and then love them like that. Because there's nothing about us that was appealing to God. Nothing. No, no please do not compare yourself. <laughs> we think we are really good because we always compare ourselves with the worst. I'm not son of Sam. I'm not Hitler. We, we, I, I, I don't try to hurt people, but you do. You hurt them anyway. And if, it's, if truth be known, sometimes you tried. <laughs> We're terrible. Our best efforts are bad. And we have sinned before God in the highest order of wrong. I know we all have demarcations of what is best and good and bad and, and what's heinous. We, 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 but before God... Adam and Eve, they didn't knock off a 7-Eleven. They didn't kill anybody. They just ate from a tree of which they were not to eat. And God said, you're dead. 
In the day you eat of it, you will die. Spiritually, they died on the inside. It took over 900 years for that to work out in their flesh. And I, I don't want to talk about length of time. People lived back then. I got ideas, but I don't have time. It took time, but they died. And Adam and Eve were only able to give what they had. The rule was in creation that like was to be get light. Whatever the seed was in the, on the inside of the, of the fruit from which, from which, uh, that the plant bore, then that seed would bear exactly what the tree was. And so there couldn't be any difference. An apple tree couldn't bear an orange. A pear tree couldn't bear a lemon tree. Adam could only bear what he was. Sinners beget sinners. We came out like him, bent wrong. And, and, and the first thing that we usually do when the age of consciousness comes to us, it is not that, oh, I am made in the image of God. I must be altruistic to my society. At the age of seven, I need to go feed the poor. No. Sometime around that point, we think, what can I get for Christmas? <laughs> I'm not saying that's bad, but it's about me. It's always about me. We have to teach our children how to obey, not how to disobey. True? We have to teach them to love. You never have to teach your child to be selfish. It just comes naturally. If mankind is good and getting better, shouldn't they have worked that out by now? Shouldn't that have just come kind of naturally out of the womb, DNA switched around, where everybody is just sweet and kind and self-sacrificing? My children are great, but they weren't that. When it comes to understanding what we need to be and what we need to do, we must know that there are things that need to change on the inside of us in order for us to understand what God gave to us. If we don't understand the need that we have, then we won't appreciate the gift that was given. And here in this holiday season, I beg you, if we're going to do something that helps us understand our purpose in the earth, let this holiday season, let this Christmas season be that which distinguishes us from the rest of everybody else who is celebrating about the season itself by us be, be, being the ones that present the, the purpose of the season, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We are to be different in every way. In every way. Jeremiah tells them to seek the welfare of the city that they hate. They hate. I don't, I, I wasn't born in Washington. I was born in Kansas. God called me here in 1982 to help establish this church. Called me with 11 other people. And he has been good to us. And for that, I'm grateful. I was not the senior pastor. I was only 21. Senior pastor was Mark Koch, a man who's on staff now, great man. I became senior pastor in 1991 when he handed over the congregation to me. And then we invited him back some five or six years ago to be on staff, a great relationship, a miracle in terms of restoration relationship, just beautiful. But the Lord has been good to us. But I, there's nothing about this city naturally that makes me stay. First of all, 
Be careful. Be careful. First of all, I'm looking at people who aren't thinking about staying either. I mean, I'm not mad. But when you think about Washington, D.C., people are thinking about, I'm going to go there, get what I need, and get out. They're not thinking about making this home forever. I'm going to get my resume stacked with a consulting company, with a subcontracting company, with the government. I'm going to become a part of a law firm. I'm going to become a part of the government on staff. I'm going to put something on my resume that allows me to be hired someplace else other than here. (laughs) You talk about transience. People are coming here to use this city. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's real. We should be here to serve this city. Serve it. In, 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 in fiction world, Dorothy's my best friend. Some of y'all don't know Wizard of Oz. I don't know how it worked for her, but it doesn't work for me. I can't go back to Kansas. God won't let me go back to Kansas. I've asked him. I said, people are nicer there. I mean, when you're waiting, red, the, the light is red. It just turned green. In Kansas, they will wait at least three to five seconds because they know he'll figure it out. You haven't moved yet. But when you get past the five seconds, it's a little beep. It's not a bah. Nobody's mad at you in Kansas. You know your neighbors in Kansas. Your community association means something in Kansas. I like Kansas. But he's not letting me go back. I'm not mad at him. Because I know what he's called me to do, and he bought me with a price, and my life is not my own. I can't decide where I want to go, what I want to do, who I want to be. That's not my decision. That's his. So he called me here, and I have no natural affection for the city, but I've grown in love with it. All I want to do is seek its welfare, and not so that somehow I can benefit, but so that Jesus can be glorified. In order to seek the welfare of the city well, we've got to, we've got to distinguish ourselves and not, not be incorporated, just completely absorbed into the culture of Washington. We've got to be different. God had a plan, and it was bigger than the Israelites. But they couldn't see it because when they thought that God chose them first, they thought he chose them only. But God was not just interested in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was interested in Adam. Everybody that stemmed from Eve, that's who he cared about. And that's all of us. And so every time we see an emphasis where God is trying to be nice to people who are not Israelites, it's because he's trying to create an annex. A people group that's larger than Israel. Think about Jonah for a minute. 
Jonah was, was a reluctant prophet. Now, he was a prophet to his own people, but then God told him, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to prophesy. And Jonah says, no. <laughs> if you're a prophet, you don't have the right to say that. You don't have the right to say God. Tell God no anyway, but especially if you're a prophet and he goes in the opposite direction, it doesn't work out well. When you're, when you're, when you're, when, when, when the best solution is, is for you to be swallowed by a fish, that's a bad day. <laughs> it's a bad day. He gets spit up on the shore by this fish and then he has to walk to Nineveh. He's been running for a long time, walked to Nineveh, and then he prophesies. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh we find out at the end of the book, is because he knew God was going to be merciful. And he hated the Ninevites. The Ninevite, Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria had been waging war against the northern kingdom, Israel. And they had beaten them badly. Over and over and over again. They had done atrocities to the people. And, 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 and many of the folks who had probably been hurt were relatives of Jonah, friends, neighbors. And now God says, you go to Nineveh. <laughs> go to your enemy and talk to him. He says, uh-uh. No, no, no. I know you. I know you. I Listen, if you think about them like I think about them, just kill them. <laughs> you don't need to announce that you're going to do bad stuff. Just kill them. If you announce that you're going to do bad stuff, that'll give him an opportunity to repent. And I don't want those jokers to repent. I want them to die. So no, I ain't going because I know you. You're going to be kind to people I don't like. He had to go prophesy for three days with a bad attitude. In 40 days, God's going to overthrow this city. In 40 days, God's going to overthrow this city. Hey! I can't wait. <laughs> I added that part, by the way. <laughs> Excuse me. So, after he prophesies for three days, he goes outside the city, sits and waits. He waits for destruction. You know what he should have done? He should have taken the rest of his friend prophets with him. A whole bunch of purple books. Biblical foundation books. That's what we use in order to build foundations in people's lives. Should have taken all that with them and discipled all these people. Because what they did in three days was repent. They repented, everyone. The king repented. They said, we heard this prophet. They put on sackcloth, which is burlap. Took off all the clothes, put on sackcloth for three days. They did not eat, nor did they drink. And they even put sackcloth on their animals. I've never heard of people making animals fast. Nobody ate or drank anything for three days, and God heard, and he relented. He says that Jonah was so angry. I, he said, I knew you were going to do this. I knew it, and I, that's why I didn't come. And God, he, he allowed a plant to grow over Jonah because it was hot there, and this plant brought shade to him. And then the plant died, and Jonah was sad about the plant. And God said, why are you so sad about this plant? That means nothing, yet I saved an entire city, and you care nothing about that? You wanted them destroyed? What is wrong with you? The Israelites thought they were only, not first, not just first. 
God had a plan that he was working with all of the, the entire nation. He had, as I said, Daniel and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet, prophesying to the people while he was there in Babylon. And, and, and being the, the encouragement about what it meant, meant to live in a foreign land. And then Daniel, he was in the upper echelons of society. He was in the king's court. Amazing. The Lord has people in positions when he wants to save a community. And he's telling the, norm, the, the garden variety every day, seek the welfare because I got stuff happening here too. It's all going to work together for good. Every bit of it. And so here's Daniel. And, and the king has a dream. And, and this dream, he's tired of his own sorcerers and, and conjurers manipulating circumstances to make it seem like they are really supernatural. And so the king has a dream, and he says, I had a dream. I want you to interpret it, but you're going to have to interpret it after you figure out what I dreamt. And these men come and say, oh, king, nobody can do that. We'll, we'll interpret the dream once you tell us. He said, no, no, no. You must tell me what I dreamt, then interpret it. If you don't, you will die. That's how angry Nebuchadnezzar was. He didn't invite Daniel to the party. These other men heard what happened. I mean, knew, knew, their sentence, knew what their sentence was going to be. They invited Daniel to the party. said, Daniel, can you help us? Daniel says, give me a day, O king. Comes back the next day. King says, can you tell me what I dreamt? He said, no, I can't. But God can. King, this is what you dreamt. Told him the dream and the interpretation. The result was this. Nebuchadnezzar said, I know now that there is no other God but your God. I'll worship him. And for you, you'll be, you'll be a second in command. Gave him a whole bunch of stuff. God had things working at the top while the people in Babylon were supposed to work the ground. This is what he thinks about the world. He cares about people. And when I think about what's, what, what needs to happen in Washington, we need to be people that are constantly thinking about the welfare of the city. And how do we do that best? By being salt and light in a place that is very corrupt and dark. Amen. We're not just seeking the welfare in terms of economy. We're seeking the spiritual welfare of the city that people who are dwelling in darkness will see a great light. That they won't have to live in the corruption of their lives. That they won't have to be constantly in darkness and depression. That they can actually have hope every day. Not just what's going to happen tomorrow, but eternal. That's the welfare of the city about which we need to seek. That the kingdom of God will be represented in Washington, D.C. As it is in heaven. Uh, that's not a, a made-up bread prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? How? Washington's a part of earth. That's what I'm believing for. <laughs> That's seeking the welfare of the city from a spiritual perspective. And that means we've got to be different. We can't just be like everybody else. We're, like the, 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 the Israelites... We're aliens here. We're strangers. They were strangers in a foreign land. We are because our ultimate home cannot be anchored here. Our home is there. 
We point up because we believe that's more direction-oriented toward heaven. But our, our, our reality is anchored beyond this temporal stuff. It's in the eternal realm. We actually believe that God became man without compromising his godness. And he wrapped himself in a, a human body, put himself in a womb, and then came out and became the redemptive benefit for all of mankind. That is so unusually strange. It is so wonderful, but it is, almost, it is almost a secondary thought to everything that Christmas is. This is what we need to be celebrating on a regular basis. The sacrifice, not just that Jesus gave on the cross, which is an Easter moment, but the sacrifice that he made to give up all the privilege of his godness while he was in heaven. Everything he had in terms of his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his all-knowing, his every place at once, and his all-power gave it all up to wrap himself in a human body. And, and, and not just, could he have come as a, a, a 30-year-old man with strength? I, I don't know. He decided to come as a baby. Weakest form of, of life on the planet that needs more attention to get to maturity than any other animal life Somewhere around 35, they grow up. <laughs> what a gift. He sacrificed so much. And then he sacrificed what he sacrificed to get. He gave up all the privileges of his godness. And then gave up his humanity for our benefit as well. Amazing. That's how much he cares about us. That's how much he loves us. This is what we need to display and convey to people. Now, how do we need to do this? In a way that makes sense according to the sacrifice. That we are actually people that partake in what he's done. That we are emulators of who he is. That we are ambassadors of his kingdom. That's how we do it. We can't be like the rest of the world. We've got to be different. Very different. We can't be like the, 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 the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Where Jesus comes and, and says, you know, I'd rather you be either hot or cold. But you are neither. And because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, I, I, I don't think that God is trying to ascribe morality to temperature here. Because if so, then usually cold in Scripture is not good. You're not, you're not on fire for God. I think he's just trying to talk about temperature and how people respond to temperature. Meaning, Laodiceans, you're lukewarm. What, what, what happens when you enter? Anybody gotten a hot tub before? Generally, they're about 104 to 105 degrees. Do you dive in? How do you approach a hot tub? <laughs> Today, I hang around a lot of athletes. After they perform, whatever they do, they got to get in a cold tub. Reduce the inflammation. They never jump in. 
I mean, these are people that understand pain a lot. They are always, and I don't ever use a cold tub, ever. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm not kidding. It just just is so shocking to me. Cold water is just nuts. But what happens when you go to a pool in July? Cannonball! You don't have to approach it differently at all. You just dive straight in. Laodiceans, does anybody have to change your approach to you when they approach you? Are they so comfortable around you that they can just dive right into your life? Is there anything they have to change? Their language, their thought process, the way they move. Is there anything they have to change about you? Anything at all they have to change when they come to get around you. Because they don't, your witness of me makes me vomit. This is how we need to be if we want to seek the welfare of the city because this city is a mess. It's a mess. It needs to be righted in so many ways. And you are the best solution God has. The church, great Christians, there is no better solution. You need to be either hot or cold. And it doesn't mean they have to like you. When I walk into the locker room of the commanders, it's one of these, oh, There's Pastor Brett. Language changes in a hurry. When they see me in the cafeteria, uh, can, 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 can I sit? Absolutely. Come on, come on. Can, can, can I talk to you? They're changing their approach all the time. They've got to navigate around it. And it's not because of the title. I'm going to close. I've already preached too long. We need to pray for our city. Pray, please, talk to God on behalf of the city. Talk to God. Ask him to be be merciful to the city, to be kind to the city, to help these people. And then lastly, he says this, that if you do this, if you seek the welfare of the city, in its welfare, you will find yours. I don't do what I do in in order to get something from God. I don't. I do it because he's worthy. He gave his all for me. I need to give my all for him. And if I never get anything for it, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm not expecting him to do another thing for me. He's already treated me much better than I deserve. If I don't get another thing from him for the rest of my days, smile will be on my face when I enter into heaven. But he says this, if you seek the welfare of the city, in it, in its welfare, will be yours. There's a benefit. And I'm not saying this, super, this automatically superimposes over our situation. I believe that God really to, wanted to win Babylon. It didn't work because the people didn't do it. All they wanted to do is get back to Jerusalem. Not mad about that, but they didn't impact Babylon the way they should have. Daniel did. Ezekiel did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. But nothing happened at the grassroots level. Nothing happened to win Babylon. Before I pass from this planet, I want to say something happened through Grace Covenant to help win Washington. Something, something happened. We're planting churches in Ward, uh, we just planted one five weeks ago in Ward 2. We have one in Ward 
Five in Ward 6. We have three downtown. Our goal is to plant one congregation in every ward by 2030. We've got five more to go. We have two that we're trying to plant in 2024, one more in 2026. I want to see God do something because the church and you are his best answer. I know it may not be a good one, but it's the best one he's got. I, I know what I'm not. I know what I'm not. But he's only got people. That's all he's got. And so he doesn't have a plan B. We're it. And if we just yield to him, he's not looking for the most qualified. He's not looking for the most talented. He's not looking for the most articulate. He's looking for the most available. If we will just be that, just be that, two hands, two feet, a mouth that can testify about his goodness, we might, in our generation, see God do something that's never been done in this city. Let's seek, <clears throat> excuse me, it's welfare. I've been trying to recover and this hasn't helped. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen, I pray, our resolve to do what's necessary to see your city won. We know you died for this city. We know how much you care for this city. Have your way in using us to see it helped in Jesus' name.